We are in Parshat Mishpatim. We're in Exodus. We are in uh, a part of Torah that uh, is the Book of the Covenant. So we had this idea of entering into a covenant introduced last week, right? That whole idea of being in a special kind of relationship that is going to be sealed with this idea of uh, breach, with this idea of cutting a covenant. We're getting some of the terms of that covenant here. So this is going to close the the part of Torah that's called the Book of the Covenant. And uh, for me... Mishpatim is, is really one of the great contributions of the Jewish people to the world. Um, it is truly one of the turning points in human history. It is not out of nowhere that it comes. It comes out of the context of other peoples who are living at the time and in the neighborhood with laws and understanding that there must be laws and just behavior and ways to rectify things when they go wrong in order to have a society that works. That's a widespread idea in the ancient Near East and for a long time. What we see with Mishpatim, what we see with this idea of covenant with terms is something, though, completely new, which is, this is not the will of the king. Those laws that we get in other societies that are neighboring ancient Israel believe that the word of the king is law. And that is why you follow it, because it is the word of the king. And the king's word is law, and if you don't follow that law, there are consequences. Even if they understood that to be a good thing, that there are laws. It's a very different thing to say, We're following these laws because we understand that the ultimate force in the universe is an ethical force, is a force that calls us into being like it, and in that sense, allying with those who are oppressed, taking care of those at the margins and at the edges, because there's no one else to speak for them, and it's wrong not to speak for them. That, that that is rooted in divinity is new in the world. It is this idea of ethical monotheism that will transform the region and will transform religious history and thinking for millennia. We are still living, right, in the wake of this amazing transformation. Uh, Karen Armstrong, uh, who was a former nun, who left the convent. Uh, She is a wonderful teacher and uh, has done a lot of research. Her her research um, started to evolve into a place where she was fascinated with how many places around the world this idea was kind of bubbling up. That that we weren't the only ones to have this idea. Um, And that, like she calls it, um, that, that there was a time when human Terrestrial human culture, which is what anthropologists used to talk about all human culture, the terrestrial human culture was ready for a shift, was evolving into a place where it was ready, had reached the tipping point, right, of of coming into a new way of looking at things and a new way of understanding our relationship to religious philosophy as tied to behavior and to law. So she seems, her theory is that that is what happened. Humanity matured to a place where they were experimenting with a new idea. So that that there are times within history that that happens, and this is one of those times. The Jewish people are the ones who took it by far, I think, the furthest in that. From that comes, of course, Christianity and Islam, you know, both rooting the ideas of these laws being grounded in a monotheistic concept of divinity. You know, aside from the divinity thing, if you look at the verse just preceding, mm-hmm. I'm struck by the fact that it says, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the feelings of a stranger. That's very uh, different and uh, psychological and takes uh, has respect for a person's own history and using it. I think that's terrific. So one of the things that we're going to look at, which is why I wanted to start at verse 9, is by uh, Rabbi John Lewis Aaron, 
Um, and he talks, the, the title of his piece that I'm going to share with you today is Having Yourselves Been Slaves in Egypt. <laughs> Sarah, I love that. Um, great minds. Uh, is that um, that is not necessarily the normative response to suffering and trauma. Is, okay, so now I will align myself with those who have been oppressed, those who have been harmed, those who suffer. It is just as often a human reaction to out of one's own trauma and one's own pain and one's own oppression to do what? Turn away. Turn away, to act out, to punish somebody else, to discharge pain by blaming someone else. I had to go through it. You have to. It's same in uh, medical residencies. Uh, hopefully, it's changing, right? But you, and um, but but in terms of trauma, real trauma, often what happens is that that is perpetuated through the generations. Think about child abuse, sexual abuse, all those kinds of things that um, get so ingrained that it then becomes part of one's own behavior. Um, which is counterintuitive in some ways, but is true. Societies can do it as well. Societies that have gone through trauma then often wanted to... Germany is a perfect example. So, so the, the radical aspect of this is exactly as Sarah lifts up for us, is that out of your experience of oppression, you shall not oppress someone else. Doesn't matter how traumatic it was. Doesn't matter how painful it was. You shall not do that. That is unethical. It is wrong, says God. Divinity. When we are in touch with divinity, we understand that it's wrong to oppress someone else out of our own pain. You who have come through the Shoah, you as a people who have lived through the Holocaust, know what it is. To suffer and be oppressed, you shall not do it to somebody else. This is for us a, I think, one of the things that has saved us as a people, frankly, is that we have been a people who has stayed um, in touch with, no matter how successful we have become have stayed in touch with those who are at the margins, those who are at the edges, and as a people have tended to stand up for those who, uh, who are at the margins, who are vulnerable. Um, what, what was that saying, that we earn like Episcopalians and vote like immigrants, you know, like peasants, you know, like it, that uh, it comes right out of our sacred philosophy. Let's look at the text beginning at chapter 23, verse 9. You shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the feelings of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. Six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield, but in the seventh you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Let the needy among your people eat of it, and what they leave, let the wild beasts eat. You shall do the same with your vineyards and your olive groves. Go on. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor, in order that your ox and your ass may rest, and that your bondman and the stranger may be refreshed. Be on guard concerning all that I have told you. Make no mention of the names of other gods. They shall not be heard on your lips. So we are coming to the uh, religious calendar in just a moment. Right now we are coming out of human, how human are, are to treat other humans, particularly their enemy. Right, And so you shall, if you see the ox of your enemy fallen over with its load, or whatever it is that's fallen over, um, and you are, of course, tempted to let it lay there, you may not. You must pick it up. You must help. It doesn't matter what you want to do. It is unjust because it's your enemy to walk by and not do uh, what is right. Um, where, I remember we talked about, as far as agriculture, the perimeters of the planting of the crop should mm -hmm. be left for the poor. But that's not, that, that came after this. So there are different traditions, leket, peah, there are different, there are different laws uh, regarding agriculture. 
So we get them in different places. And Amy, there's no, this is radical thought, there's no historical um, uh, precedent. precedent for this. For, for what? For this type of thought, like that you, you, you know, you take care of your slaves, you leave the uh, fields fallow so that poor people, that's in any other culture we don't see that? We don't know of Shabbat anywhere else. We, we have earlier, you know, hints of Shabbat, but not as an institutional practice like this. Um, there are, you know, ways of taking care of the poor to ground this in because I say so, says God is new. That part's new. This is a totally different... So giving it authority. It belongs to me, God. You borrow it. Therefore, you are obligated because it is right and just and divine that you leave some for the poor. This is very different from the American Constitution. An American law which is so much focused on rights. None of this is about me, me, and protecting me from other people. It's about what my responsibility is to other people. And it's, uh, we even face that today in the debates going on in our country. Many people who come from this place who say we need to take care of each other and other people who say, yes, but it's a lot more important that I have the freedom to do what I want to do. So it is a very, this is a very serious discussion of responsibilities, absolutely. This uh, verse 10 about the, or uh, 10 and 11 about mm -hmm. the fields, I, I don't read those verses specifically as addressing the needy. I mean, the needy are addressed in the sense that during the seventh year, the, the, the needy can, can take whatever is in the fallow field. But uh, I read this as you, you let the earth rest. Correct. For a year also. Yeah, we were talking about Leket and Peah. Right. So, so the other laws right, about the other, agricultural right, in, in justice. Of the gleanings and things like Correct. that. Correct. Because, if, because if, if it were only in the seventh year that the, that right. the poor would be there, they'd, they'd have a problem. <laughs> yeah, so we were referencing the other so stuff. This is right. But, but this yes. Is letting the earth, so so earth this concept that earth gets Shabbat, right. that the land deserves, not only deserves Shabbat, but, and I think this is the other thing that that we don't address so much when we look at Shabbat these days is that it's not just like it's a good thing, right, for the land to... It's like this is essential. This is a part of what will allow you people and everyone else and the earth itself to function. You, you need to yinafash. The crop rotation must have come from... Yes, they understood that in the ancient world. They understood crop rotation. Totally. And they understood that that is what yinafash means. What is nefesh? Soul. Soul, right? Which is not exactly biblical because in, in the Bible there's no difference between body and soul. But there isn't a soul concept yet. It's self. But re-selfify. This is shavat, stop, right? A cessation, shavat, an active kind of rest. That's one word. Shavat vayinafash. And you shall... Reselfify. That is an active term. That is not like okay, you know. Okay, I'm just gonna break. That may be part of it. Is a good schluff, uh, you know, in the afternoon. But but that is a part of it. The, the intention is an active sense of taking responsibility for one's obligation to reselfify, so that you don't yell at the child getting out the door in the morning. With spilling coffee, and right, that it's a responsibility because if we don't do it, it's not just a nice thing to do. If we don't do it, we become less than image than you know shining images of holiness and of God. And same for the the earth that it it is vastly important that it be able to yinafash, to reselfify also, Pam. Can say that um, that uh, the laws of Shemitah uh, of Sabbath that a lot of the Hasidic and Orthodox point to these laws because it's so counterintuitive to an agrarian society for a year to not work the land. I mean, it could have been set up, you know, a third of the field and a third and a third, or take in the year that you don't plow enough. Uh, to uh, you know, uh, plow at 
create a plant extra. No, we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to. We are supposed to um, just let all of the land lay fallow, which is just, and God will provide extra uh, in those years uh, prior. So as counterintuitive as that would be to an agrarian society, I would argue it is just as counterintuitive to us the idea of Shabbat. Right? Just as they depended right, on agrarian, like it would have been like, what? We're farmers, what? Right? I think we have the exact same. That's the intensity with which we respond to stop for a whole day. I, I'm sorry, I <laughs> yeah. agree with that, but that's yeah, part of totally. what, what human being would come up with, hey, we're all not going to work today, and, or we're going to let our land lay fallow for a year. It's just, it seems to me like it must be God-inspired, because it would be one time we all starve, and that would be the end of Shemitah, right? Yeah, but they yeah. really aren't planting all the fields at once. They probably have the understanding, you would think, if this field is going to be empty this seventh year, this field is not in their seventh year. They must have figured that out right away. No, it's all the land. All the land. So what did they eat? Yeah. All right, Bert? I was going to say, verse 12 looks like it gives yet another reason for Shabbat. Go on. Because, well, if I'm correct, the, the Ten Commandments, twice, give different reasons. Once Egypt and the other one rested on the seventh day. Nachon. And this says, you shall cease from labor on the seventh day. And then it says, in order that. So that the reason you do it is to have your ox and your animals and the strangers. So it's a, it's a very, very human, altru altruistic mm -hmm. reason. Right. So Shabbat. connecting this idea of, you know, the... The land right, and the people of, right. and animal, right? That there's a chiastic relationship. That, uh, it's not altruistic. Yeah, Maybe the, the ox won't perform it's, next yeah, week it's, and it's, the slave won't perform next week. Well, but it also says stranger. stranger. You can't work them to but the you can't work them to death. Yeah. Talking, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it gives us as a reason for Shabbat. Yes. Which it could have been every eight days or every 12 days. Why every seven, you know, every seven days, that whole seven cycle? Well, it probably just makes it easier to remember if everything is on the seventh day. <laughs> well, remember... Okay, you get your break on the ninth day. Seven, the seven is very important. Yeah, seven, critical. It's the magic number for us. But there's nothing... Huh? Hamuda, we have more than one magical number. Hamuda, please, Vakasha. There's nothing in nature that says seven. Ah, ah, ah. Unlike the moons, you've got to count the seven days. Ah, so, but if one takes the cycle of the moon in quarters, one has seven. So, uh, but eh. nine and a half days for a lunar month. It doesn't add up. All right, so you're going to have to come to my class okay. on uh, Shabbatu and a heart rest to the goddess, but that's another class. All right, so let's go to 13. So 13 is actually kind of two separate Sukim, two separate verses put together. Um, so that you should be, you should be shomer, you should be vigilant, right, about guarding everything that I've just said, meaning everything preceding. We, the next is the clause that introduces the final section of the uh, Book of the Covenant. Make no mention of other gods, they shall not be on your lips, right? So this is opening the next the next part which is the because it seems weird that it's here like what but it's here because it's introducing the festivals right so meaning you're going to do the same festivals that the pagan world is doing around you be very clear this is not the festival to ishtar Right? So when you're doing these, you know, festivals that are about the harvest, make sure there's no other names coming out of your mouth as you do these rituals, right? This is not, you know, this is not the festival that your Canaanite neighbors are doing or the Egyptians or the, you know, anybody else. This is a completely new valuing and understanding of these festivals. So, and this is, by the way, ethical monotheisms change talking to Roseanne's point about you know what what so they did have in the ancient world an understanding of being grateful for crops they did have an understanding of wanting rain to fall and of doing rituals connected to both thanksgiving and petitionary prayer 
But it was not because they were living in right relationship to the It was they would participate in acts that if you did them down here would trigger the same thing up there. So if you want the gods to make sure that there's still fertility happening, what do you do? You engage in sacred acts of fertility yourselves. Right? So sexuality as part of experiencing the rituals of fertility. So it's your acts that make the That trigger the gods' actions. And what you're trying to do is keep the cycles going. You want to keep the circle spinning so that the spring comes after the winter and and we don't all die. Right? That is not the idea of the festivals in our tradition. So they're at the same time, they're at the harvest time, like everybody else is doing, but it's not about keeping the circle spinning. It's about saying we understand it all comes from one source, and we are offering back to that source some of what we have produced in order to express our gratitude because that is the proper relationship to be in. And, that, and then ethically sharing it with those who don't have enough is the way we stay in right relationship to the divine and therefore deserve crops that will be fertile next season. Yes? Um, I, I don't know if, I, I'm sure he was not the first one to say this, but there was a a German historiographer about a hundred years ago, Oswald Spengler, who had this theory of historicity where he pointed out that the Egyptians and other peoples of those times, all of those cultures were circular in their, in their world view, and that the Israelites were the first ones to have a, to see themselves as having a linear trajectory that sort of broke the broke the cycle Correct. of the circles. Redemptive history right. enters the world. Right. The idea that it's not just a circle, which was good enough until then, because you just hoped the winter ended and you had something to eat in the spring. Right. So that was critical that they keep spinning. And it is true that with Israel's philosophy comes the idea of redemptive history, that it's circling, but it's moving. Mm-hmm. And it's moving in a direction. Right. That is a new, a radical new idea in the world. Laura? That brings a whole new question. (laughs) Good. What I was thinking about just before was that in um, both the sense that if if these things were so, these concepts of ethics for the sake of ethics, because of God, if those were so radical... I, it challenges me that people could think of them. And I don't believe that a God told them to. That's my mm-hmm. own bias, my own particular view. So that's sort of a... Were you here last week? I think I was. Oh, you were. So mm-hmm. Michael Lerner says mm-hmm. something happened. Right. We don't have to understand or know what that was, but our people, something happened and enough people... Got it. And maybe it's Karen Armstrong's point of whatever is happening. The second part is what, whatever it was that made them feel that this ethical way of being was the way to do it. In some ways, moving from the pagan tradition of they had to make it happen, if they didn't do it, it's kind of a relief. Like, God will do it. We just have to you know, honor God and the pressures off us having to make sure that the fertility happens and that we have to. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of maybe maybe was sort of a big weight off their shoulders that it was no longer on them to make the cycle happen because God. Although in the ancient world, they under they understood that the gods that controlled the forces of thunder and rain and whatever were whimsical. Your pagan fertility rites might or might not work, right? It might, but if Zeus got angry at Hera, right, and throws something, and you're in the your crop is in the way, you're toast. So it. There was a lot of anxiety in the ancient world you know, about what was going to go on up there and was it going to be efficacious what I'm doing down here. And so to some extent, okay, maybe it's a relief that if I live in right relationship to this new concept of God, then I'll be taken care of. The, the other end of that is it's a communal responsibility. And I know how my neighbors are, so... I'd be a little nervous that we as a society, are we really living into 
what we say here because the, the evidence shows never, never did they live into this. Right? There, there are statues of Ishtar, found, I mean, Asherah found in every period of Israelite occupation, in every place. So, you know, they knew, I mean, it was still, it was still a very, very precarious life. War, right? It was a very precarious world they lived in. So, I think, yes, the, the longing for relief, you know, definitely is present. How can we best live into what we think might help? Definitely. Um, but it, it's still a huge... It's an anxious time. Obligations they had to fulfill. Hmm? Mm -hmm. They were they shifted what the obligations were that they had to fulfill. They instead of doing the fertility, they had to live right and do all the things. And shifting the location uh, of the authority for the the authority becomes God. Mm -hmm. That is a different internal relationship to those ideas than the king said so. Mm -hmm. And so we have to follow the law. But it's also, I feel, it's an empowerment. Right. It mm -hmm. empowered people by giving them responsibility, mm -hmm. by giving them a code of ethics, by saying, you know, you, there's a partnership here. That's right. You know, you, right, you, mm -hmm. you know, we don't exist without you. You don't exist without us. I don't know that I go that far, but yes. But it, it empowers them to live in right relationship. Absolutely, 100%. 100%. Okay. La, 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 la. So. What's <laughs> redemptive history? Does that, yeah, a, a sense that time is moving forward? Just Towards something. The Messiah. Or the Messianic age. That we are moving towards the Messianic age. That is the goal. And that it's out there. The goal is out there. And, and that history is moving. And our responsibility is to move history towards the Messianic Age. Rabbi um, Yitz Greenberg has a, his new book that's going to be coming out. He's working on it now. He's retired fully so that he can write this new book because his wife said, if you don't do it now, it's not going to happen. Um, and so it, his whole definition of covenant is that we are, our actions that are, that are described as the terms of the covenant are the way that we are to take the world as it is and move it towards what it should be. That that is the whole, not that it's simple, but, that, but that's, that's, a, that's the idea of covenant, is that we get what is, and God says, so you shall interact with what is, so that you are constantly moving it towards what it should be. And at the end of that, the messianic age, you won't be eating animals. But until then... Right? Treat them humanely. Slaughter them humanely. Don't boil a newborn kid in its own mother's Like, there are limits to how you can eat other living beings. Because you shouldn't be eating them at all. If you look at the Eden story, we didn't eat meat. Right? So, so this idea of we interact with the world as it is, moving it towards what it should be, that's what the covenant is all about. So, um, you can have a goal, but it's the journey that's Absolutely right. Because we can't, we can't work with the goal. We, we got to work with what's now. We got to work with what is. So what will we be eating? Just fruits and vegetables? <laughs> Mickey, you say that with such disdain. Like, you know, really? Just fruits and vegetables? But the thought of not eating chicken I doubt we're going to live to see the messianic age, unfortunately. So not to worry. We'll be growing chickens. I mean, we can... We'll be growing chicken. We can, you can grow, you can grow well, protein. Can grow you can grow, pro oh, you can yeah, grow protein in culture. Right. So we're okay. probably 20 to 50 years from just growing. I think it's, it's easy for us to think today with all the technological change that we see in our lives. Everything is changing so fast that everything is moving forward to something, or some people say backwards, but that it's moving and changing. I think we need to remember at this time when people lived real lives 30 and 40 years and the difference for 100, 200, 300 years was not a huge amount of change not a lot of technological change and whatever it really did seem as if things just were stuck in a groove and kept on repeating themselves for us, you know, we look at ourselves I was raised before there was TV and we look at our kids and grandkids 
you know, who don't know uh, a world without iPhones and iPads and who knows what's going to be their kids, that it's real easy for us to think that there's movement. But I think we have to remember about these times. So it helps it us appreciate it was, yeah, it was how obvious. radical that was. Right, that, pe- that people who, you know, everything was the same. You were the same as your parents and their parents and their parents and their parents mm-hmm. and lived in the same place, that they thought that really there was a movement. That is radical. That, it's, it's crazy. It's not intuitive. Crazy. Um, and by the way, I just want to make sure I give full credit that um, Karen Armstrong's book that explores this um, is The Axial Age. Um, That's the name of the book book where she talks about, like, you know, like Ankhenaten and that whole monotheistic uprising in Egypt that got quashed, but that some of us believe, someday I'm going to do the PhD in it, some of us believe this is where Moses, this is where the story of Moses actually comes from, some of us believe. A prince of Egypt who gets, who leaves, leaves, fugitive, kicked out, monotheism, you, you can't convince me there's not a connection. I'll find it someday. All right. So... Things are moving so slowly. What do people do for stress? How did they get stress in their life? So, no stress. It's a good question. It's a very good question. All right, 15. 15, somebody read. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. Eating unleavened bread for seven days, as I have commanded you, at the set time in the month of Aviv. For in it you went forth from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. And the feast of the harvest, the first fruits of your work, of what you sow in the field, and the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in the results of your work from the field, three times a year all your males shall appear before the sovereign of night. Okay. So, you shall observe, what do we have here? Chag Hamatzot. What is Chag Hamatzot? What's missing from Chag Hamatzot here? Seven days. Is that our festival? Ah, eight days is our festival. So what is this? Chag Hamatzot. What's missing is the the Paschal Lamb, right? The Pesach is missing. Originally, remember Pesach Chag Hamatzot. Come from different traditions. One is an agrarian festival. One is a... What do you call it? Pascal lamb. Rancher? Semi-nomadic pastoralists, right? So they have flocks. And they, they, so you have your lambing festival for the semi-nomadic pastoralists. You have your chagamatot for the agrarian societies. Those come together in ancient Israel. But we see, right, that there's still... Right, this, this its own relationship to the other agrarian festivals here without the Pesach. It is one Chag Hamatzot is one of the three Chagim, one of the three festivals. These were pilgrimage festivals, right? So you had to go to the shrine with your stuff, with your yield, with a part of your yield. You had to take it and offer gifts out of that. It was a pilgrimage festival, and this is where we get the Islamic word what? Hajj. It is from here. It is from Hajj. Hajj, this idea of at a specific time making a pilgrimage, right? Or for us it was a specific time. Like, but this is Hajj is to, right, to go to Mecca and, and make that sacred journey. It is exactly from this. What else are these called here? They are called Regalim. Shalosh Regalim. By foot you will go. Right? So the three leg times, the, the three, meaning, meaning it's not just about what's happening with the land. These are regalim. What they are defined as are walking times. So you couldn't ride your camel? Or no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this word for festival, regalim, is from you, you made a pilgrimage together to go be together at that sacred time. You couldn't, you're in, you couldn't just celebrate you know, with, with where you were with you know, all kinds of um, fertility stuff. Right? You had to take it and go to the central shrine and offer it there back to Yudhei to whom all of it belongs. And um, I, it became problematic for the people who lived in the north. Correct. Right? <laughs> correct. 
But reading the English here, based on what you said about the last half of uh, verse 13, uh -huh. where you said it was about God saying me, this doesn't look, at least in the English, as if these are new festivals. Right. But that if you took the first, uh, the translation here of 14, is three times a year you shall hold a festival, and if you underline me, festival for me, is this saying that the existing festivals now become transformed? Is that... This is Reconstructionist. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. They are now my festivals. So it's not saying these are new festivals. And then where it says mm -hmm. all you males shall go, does um, that imply that the women didn't go? Because you just said everyone went. Only the males are commanded to go. But the women can They can go. go. They can go. Well, so weren't the males considered to be the representative of the whole family? Yes. Yes. Um, absolutely. And, and yes, yeah, so when we get these Chag HaMatzot, the hay, the definite article, lets us know that they are already established holidays. Not, you shall now have seven days and you will call it Chag HaMatzot, right? It's, it's already understood. So these are really transformative. But, but now, they shall be so it's for me. Right. Mm -hmm. So where was the shrine if these are people that just got finished the exodus? Yes. So, Torah history, real history. So, originally there were local shrines. Eventually, there was the temple in Jerusalem. So before the temple, there were going There were local shrines, Correct. Um, all right, so so for for on so in the month of Aviv, you went out from Egypt, right? No one shall come before me empty-handed, right? That is impolite and wrong. Um, and so then we get after Chag Hamatzot, Chag Hakatzil. What is that? The the Chag of the harvest, right? So we know this as Shavuot. Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, right? Um, so Greek Jews called it Pentecost, the 50th. Why? It's the 50th week. So it's 50th day, 50th day after Pesach. It doesn't have a date. It is dependent on Pesach and counting from Pesach. It's the only holiday without its own designated date. It's dependent on Pesach. So it is the 50th day, the 50th holiday, uh, Pentecost. So, um, so this is also a harvest festival. This is the barley harvest in Israel, um, connected to, therefore, you know, in some ways, Pesach. Hmm? Chag Abikurim. So, Say anything about the date, 50 days in here. That's, that came later. Is that right? Hmm? Doesn't say anything about the 50 days in here. Correct. Later it says you should count off okay. seven, seven. It seven says it in Leviticus. Okay. In Leviticus, okay. we get, you know, and, and that's for all of these. We don't even get a date for Pesach here. The only reason we know the date of Pesach is because we have it somewhere else. Okay. Um, that the barley festival was the one they didn't. That they had. That was when they were eating matzah. No, it had nothing to do. That's with the wheat. That. That's the wheat. That's oh, chagamatot. Right, wheat and then barley, right? And then what are you going to have? Chag haasif at the end of the year. Chag haasif. So here are your major festivals: the springtime, so kind of your first harvesting, the summer harvest, and the last festival is is celebrating that you have enough to eat to keep you alive through the winter until Chag Ha'aviv, right? This was the ancient Israelite understanding of the Jewish year. What's missing? Hanukkah. <laughs> for sure, for sure. What else is missing? Well, Rosh Hashanah. Where's Rosh Hashanah? Where's Yom Kippur? Their orientation was an agrarian orientation to the year. So it was in relationship to the land, in relationship to the seasons, that you were to sanctify your yield and your eating and the changing of the seasons. They are now given like a historical element, not just that it's spring and the crops happened, yay, 
but you went out of Egypt, right? So we're getting another layer, a historical layer on top of the uh, agricultural layer. But still, it's very much like these three major festivals were about relationship to the seasons. Well, what are we calling the uh, feast of the ingathering? That's Sukkot, the fall harvest. But, but that's, that's the second. No, the second one's Shavuot. Shavuot. Oh, Shavuot. The feast of the harvest. Yeah. yeah. Um, is Shavuot, the barley harvest, then Chag Asif. Why gathering in? Because you're going to gather everything that's left that you can possibly use over the winter so that you don't die. So the agrarian year, I mean, the, you know, the festival year ends at Sukkot. Yay, if that harvest goes well, we're going to live another year because we're going to survive the winter. This is why many people believe, and I am totally one of those, believe that Yom Kippur was tied to Sukkot. Right before the big, massive, in-gathering party that means you're going to make it through the winter because of this harvest, that's the biggest party there is. Then everybody's hunkering down for the winter and darning socks and, right, repairing tents and, right, so... If you're agrarian and you're not farming, you're hanging out, everyone kind of goes home. The big party is Sukkot. The last big thing of the year is Sukkot. What do you want to make sure happens before that party? That you're in the book, that you've cleaned everything up, that the community's right with God, that the community's right with each other, everybody's been forgiven, everybody has a clean slate. Rock on. <laughs> so, so since this time, at, at this point, how much later was Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, or Rosh Hashanah becoming important? It's much later. And how did that happen? Because uh, of history. We, weren't, we were kicked out of the land. We were no longer tied to the agrarian festival. So for me, what's, what's sad is that we've kind of lost the Yom Kippur preparing for something. And I'm not saying we need to have Sukkot be a huge deal because we're not really, you know, we just don't have, especially in Duluth, I got to tell you, it was like completely meaningless. I have a picture of our Sukkah that we built because Ellie was born on the fourth day of Sukkot, so I was trying to make it her birthday holiday. So we built our little Sukkah. I have a picture of the little chairs and the Sukkah with snow in it, with Ellie in her snow boots and her parka in the Sukkah. And it's like, it makes absolutely no sense. And so... It, it is just right. It's like, so, thank God for Ralphs. I mean, that, so we we don't have a relationship to Sukkot. So I'm not suggesting we need to necessarily have Sukkot festival be. But I feel like we've lost Yom Kippur. Now Yom Kippur is the goal in itself, kind of. And like I think we've lost the sense of you do that with momentum, so that. What? Then you get together as a community and you're so happy and relieved and you've done all this amazing work together praying as a community and cleaning everything up so that you can, I don't know, so that you can party. I mean, so I guess what I'm saying is I would love in reconstructing Judaism right now or reforming it, not to be elitist. Um, so I, in our reforming and reconstructing of, of Jewish practice, I would love to see you know, 50 years from now, that there, that there's something on the other side of Yom Kippur that's normative for the community to be doing with all of that fabulous energy that comes out of the high holidays. We go out of the high holidays and people are like, I don't want to go back to shul for six months. They don't want to see me again. Like, Sukkah, you've got to be kidding, Sukkah. But what if it were something else? What if it were that we go to Pali Park and, like, there's a huge festival two weeks after Yom Kippur where we just hang out with the, you know, bring our dogs and barbecue and I don't, you know, like, Why do we have to wait 50 years for that? I love how this woman thinks. I love how this woman thinks. I don't feel that way. Like, I, I think a lot of us feel very elevated and kind of like on a cloud for weeks after the high And there's nowhere to put it. There's nowhere to put it. Yeah. You feel like you're all jazzed up. You've gotten all dressed up for the date and it's like, there's no one coming to the door. Well, some people go out and hammer a nail or make a sukkah. To rush out to yeah. begin the next right. celebration. And I think that used to, that's, that's how it's supposed to be. Not supposed to, but you know, like that, that's, that's intuitively right. Yeah. You know, that we should be with all that energy rushing to do something. And 
for those of us who don't really observe Sukkot, or Sukkot's not really it for us anymore, we, we don't do that. And I find, like, I'm always, you know, I was in theater a lot. And so whenever a show ended, there was always, like, this, like, you know, like, this letdown, this huge crash of the show being over. And that's how I feel. Like, there's no, like, we're all here. This is fantastic. And then, psh, it's all gone. Everybody goes away. In the early days of KI, right after the holidays, we used to, as a community, used to go out and build a sukkah. Right? And everybody participated. It was, it was a big party. Actually. Right? So I'm hoping we figure out, you know, another manifestation, or, or whatever, you know, of what that might be for us. Because I think this is really right in terms of, like, it works, I think. All right, so what time are we at? Huh? Ten more minutes? No. Ten thirty-five. Okay. So we end at ten forty-five. So yeah. Um, so I've given you two things. I've given you um, some a piece by Rabbi Lewis Aaron. He writes really great stuff, by the way. You can go to the Reconstructionist website and find lots of his Divrei Torah. He writes great stuff. And I've given you a piece from Rami Shapiro, which was a very old thing that was on the internet like 15 years ago, um, which was his thing called the Tao of Torah. You can't get it. It's not published. I printed them off from the internet eons ago. And I, I can't find it anywhere. So this is, I only have certain ones of them. The second, your second sheet is Rabbi Rodney Shapiro. And it's, it's, yeah, it's just on this week's Parsha. And it went Parsha by Parsha. But we're going to start with Rabbi Aaron. We're going to start with your first. You're going to start with your first page, having yourselves been slaves in Egypt. Right? The Dow's on the back. We're starting here. One page. So we're going to start on the front page. One of the greatest challenges our ancestors faced after leaving Egypt was to find the appropriate way to use the experience of slavery and oppression to shape their political structures and social conscience. They needed to answer the question of how the memory of slavery and slaughter would be expressed in the life and culture of the Jewish people. The question that had to be answered was this. Would their bitter memories lead to a society built on anger and resentment or to one founded on compassion and concern? We cannot diminish the seriousness of their task. The path they followed defined our distinctive Jewish value system, which stresses concern for the stranger because we remember that we were strangers in Egypt, and support for the vulnerable members of society because we know that God, who heard our cries in Egypt, pays heed to the cries of the poor and oppressed. The laws embedded in this week's portion, the first of many formal lists of rules that we will read, stress explicitly and implicitly that we are to cherish freedom, abhor oppression, and deal honestly and equitably with both those whom we love and those whom we hate. We are called upon to build a society that promotes individual responsibility and provides legal protections for all of its members. He then says, you know, if we look around the world, it is very true that the ways people have been oppressed are turned outward, right, against other peoples, and that so much of the memories of past suffering causes a lot of the violence that we see between groups all over the world. He names some. I'm sure you can right now come up with your own. And he says on the individual level too, we see the adverse effects of suffering. So it's both at the clan or right societal level as well as the individual level. He says, as Jews living just a half century after the Holocaust, an experience at least as shattering as that of Egypt and far more painful to us because it's still part of our living memory, this question challenges us anew. We are still in the process of rebuilding Jewish life after the destruction of European Jewry. As we construct monuments and erect museums to the memory of the Holocaust, we need to ask ourselves, 
If our memory of those dark days will turn us into another small, angry people, or instead, will we remain the proud descendants of ex-slaves who taught us and the world that suffering can also motivate us to compassion? For me, this is one of the key questions of our time. So much of the Jewish response to world events, particularly in relationship to Israel, is a PTSD response. We so often react out of our pain and our fear and our anger and our suspicion that we turn on each other. And we are vehement and use language and body language and tone in ways we never would about anything else. And I really, really believe it is out of PTSD. It is out of the psychic and spiritual trauma of the Shoah that, uh, that we have this response to one another. And, and, and within Israel also. Um, but uh, he says, as American Jews... We also right, have a complicated relationship to, uh, to this question. We need to ask ourselves if we as Jews wish to become an isolated minority struggling with and against other groups at home and abroad in a constant battle to persevere and enhance our own situation, or do we wish to build a national and world society in which all people receive the support and protection our Torah tells us they deserve? This week we read, you shall not oppress a stranger because you know the feelings of the stranger having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. And this week we ask ourselves if we are still the same people as those who heard those words for the first time. Do we really remember what it was to be a stranger, to be oppressed, and to be downtrodden? And do our memories enable us to respond to the cries of those who are oppressed today? I ask us to, this Shabbat, be honest with ourselves about this question and to reflect on, on ways going into the week, on ways that we can uh, take concrete action uh, to support a position that says, yes, we are still that people. Um, I am making the commitment this week uh, not to delete stuff from American Jewish World Service. And I mean, I, it is so easy to say delete. I just can't handle it. I can't. Over and over and over, Darfur, over and over, change.org, over. It's so easy to hit delete and say, okay, I'll pay attention to the next one because I'm really busy right now. And so my commitment um, this coming week is to take seriously every one of those emails and to, to figure out how it is that I can best respond.